kind of interesting uh, at the intersection of Morley and Osborne here in Winnipeg. This is a neighborhood that probably could be any other place in Canada. And if you do a 360 degree turn here, you can see restaurants that have been shuttered, apartments that are closed, hairdressing salons that aren't open yet, and a range of other services that have to greatly restrict what they're doing. Meet Dr. Gino Distazio, professor of geography, former director of the Institute of Urban Studies, and vice president of research and innovation at the University of Winnipeg. So as we think about our cities and neighborhoods, both over the last 15, 20 years, and as we come out of a, a pandemic, the need for us to restructure our cities and our communities is going to be vitally important. Distasio has been part of a group of academics from across Canada working to understand how increased income inequality has affected neighborhoods. This multi-city study has revealed that income distribution has shifted over the past three decades, altering the social-spatial structure of cities and dividing neighborhoods along economic lines. The current health crisis with COVID-19 has further revealed how economic and social barriers are affecting our cities and our neighborhoods. On this episode, the research question is, how do we build more resilient cities post-coronavirus? From the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center, you're listening to Research Question, amplifying the impact of discovery from the researchers of the University of Winnipeg. Riverview is one of the older residential communities in Winnipeg. Bordering along the banks of the Red River and the southern half of Osborne Street, Riverview is home to a busy stretch of businesses, venues, community centers, parks, and more. The Winnipeg neighborhood is also home to longtime resident Dr. Gino Distasio. How long have you, have you lived in this neighborhood? Oh, for well over 40 years. Oh, so yeah. this has been my home, and actually I wrote my both my master's and my PhD thesis were both on neighborhoods and communities. And this neighborhood, Riverview, has been a big part of that. I mean, I find there's not too many neighborhoods like Riverview in this country that I think uh, for some of the really interesting contributions that it's had over the years. Today we're taking a walk around Riverview, properly socially distanced, of course, to talk about the changes and challenges different neighborhoods face coming out of a global pandemic. I think one of the challenges right now in a place like Riverview, as great as it is, it has certainly become an example of how neighborhoods are changing. And some will see the good or, or maybe the bad, but places like Riverview have polarized to the, to the wealthier side. And we're starting to see neighborhoods becoming more similar than dissimilar. And I've been thinking about that more in that when we have a neighborhood that is very similar with respect to income, type of housing like lots of homeowners, very few renters, and concentrations of very high income, there's something that's missing. And one of the challenges of that to say is, okay, well, maybe that's just a, a natural outcome. But places like Riverview have changed over time to become more concentrated with respect to a growing gap between the wealthier residents of Riverview and some of the less wealthier neighborhoods that even surround this area here. And that's a pattern that we're seeing across Canada, where neighborhoods are increasingly separated along economic lines. This is not a new trend. Over the past half century, income inequality in Canada has widened. Distasio's research explores how this income gap has literally changed our maps, affecting the makeup of cities and neighborhoods across the country. 
altering everything from development, housing, and access to community amenities and public spaces. And some of the things that we talk about in the work that we're doing on income inequality in Canadian cities is to measure those differences, again, neighborhood to neighborhood, but also in the responsiveness. So we have to think about the outcome of this. How do we get to more resilient cities? How do we build better communities and neighborhoods? Part of that challenge is going to be getting us back to some old school social and community planning where we really begin to think about the, the social infrastructure of communities. But what happens when a neighborhood faces the added stress of a pandemic? We are all experiencing the fallout from the public health crisis caused by COVID-19. Health concerns coupled with financial uncertainty is taking an undue toll on our collective well-being. As governments are busy trying to navigate their way through the crisis, the tendency is to overlook neighborhoods in need, putting more pressure on community support networks. On top of that, governments will often choose infrastructure spending on roads and other citywide development projects during an economic crisis. While this may assist with job creation and the overall economic recovery effort, it does not necessarily benefit the social development of neighborhoods in the long term. Distasio emphasizes that governments should not only invest in the physical infrastructure, but the social infrastructure as well. Whenever we come out of a, a major economic crisis, governments tend to prime the pump with new roads and physical infrastructure to create jobs, and that's great. But what this pandemic has exposed in our neighborhoods is the lack of social infrastructure for communities to be able to respond in these kinds of times. How do we get out there? How do we enjoy the community? How do we engage on the streets? How do we get our coffee or get our hair cut or order food? And how do children interact with the landscape? And I think that interaction has been challenged greatly, especially in neighborhoods where there's high density, not a lot of urban open spaces or parks, or parks that have actually been restricted or closed down in the short term. But once we sort of emerge from easing some of these restrictions, we need to have tools and resources to empower local communities to address some of those things, whether it's through community centers, community-based organizations, they're going to have to work hand in hand to take this next number of months and make the best of it. If our kids don't have outlets, if our adults don't have outlets, it's going to contribute to more and increasing social challenge and potentially social dysfunction, especially with youth with nothing more to do. So my fear is in some of our denser, older urban neighborhoods, those challenges are going to be amplified because there isn't the social capacity or a number of individuals in that community, whether it's formal or informal, to respond to the need to support the social, mental health and well-being of community members. As bleak as that forecast may sound, sometimes a crisis can bring us together. As we walk around the neighborhood, we see kids riding bikes, people walking their dogs, people are building fences, there's a person dropping off groceries to an elderly neighbor. In a time of great uncertainty, it appears this neighborhood is thriving. In great communities, there are those wonderful spaces that allow people to get out, socially isolate, and find ways to engage. But it's in communities where there's a lack of open space, a lack of walkability, a lack of sense of safety. 
right? So in neighborhoods like here in Riverview, it's been amazing. People are out, they're walking their dogs, they're talking to neighbors at distance. We can create better neighborhoods that are more walkable, but in some of our older neighborhoods where there still is a richness of diversity, walkability, amenities, we're pretty close to some community gardens, we're close to the river, we're close to a lot of walking trails, and at the same time, you can walk a few blocks and get some groceries. That's what we want to be able to do. And we also want to be able to walk socially, feel less isolated, and engaged in our communities. In neighborhoods where, you know, you might be in a far-flung suburb, that's going to pose some more challenges. This lack of community connection during a time of crisis isn't the only problem with older neighborhoods in flux, but new developments as well. In Winnipeg, residential developments tend to move towards the edges of the city. These new neighborhoods tend to have a lack of community and social amenities. Public community spaces like community centers, parks, and walking paths are often competing with privately owned spaces like plazas and strip malls. This lack of publicly accessible social infrastructure may limit a neighborhood's potential, but as Distasio states, so does another key factor. It takes time. Great neighborhoods like a Riverview or any community in this country aren't planned on an architect's table. They're nurtured over decades of history, of storytelling, of experience. But that doesn't help us when we build a new subdivision in the middle of nowhere that's concentrated with, with wealth or it doesn't matter, where again, the amenities of community building are absent. And they too will be amplified in these areas where kids don't have something to do. But again, I think we've come to the point now where this has exposed some of the challenges that we have in our cities. And over time, we've just pulled back a little bit on supporting social and community environments in favor of investing in new subdivisions and bigger homes and more isolated homes. And we've forgotten the importance of just rolling up the sleeves, working with communities and community members to find ways to improve well-being, give kids opportunities, while also empowering residents. To do this well, Dostasio states we need to harness the right set of tools for what he describes as a generational undertaking in social and community development. That said, community building takes a lot of time and work and organizing. And it's tough to know where to begin. As we reach Churchill Drive, the main road that wraps around Riverview, we're reminded how the simplest of changes can enrich the lives of neighborhoods. How do you take a, almost a, a neighborhood thoroughfare and turn it into one of the greatest assets in the midst of an a, a, a international pandemic? And I think Churchill Drive represents one of those small little gestures that communities and cities can do to improve well-being. Closing a street in a neighborhood like Riverview and other communities have done this, have just done that little small change. It's empowered kids to cycle down on their bikes feeling a little less afraid. It's empowered residents to walk. And it's not a big deal. It doesn't cost much money. City crews come, they put the signs up, they take them down. They manage it really wonderfully. You can have a little bit of access. But they said, this street now belongs to the people. And I know that there's lots of shots of empty plazas in Milan and Rome and all over Spain, wherever, pick a country in the world and streets are empty. But at the community level, to just do something like this doesn't take much, but it does a heck of a lot to improve 
people's outlook on the day. And I've been on here almost every day for the last week with the dog and the family, just enjoying catching up with people. And it's, it's really, it's done a lot and it didn't take much. Churchill Drive is not only important to Distasio because it's a pleasant place to walk, but it also runs along an area of the neighborhood that holds great personal significance to him. It's hard to imagine a public health crisis of this magnitude happening here before, but as we stand on the grounds of the Riverview Health Center, Distasio reminds us that this is something the neighborhood, the city, and the world has faced many times before. This was one of the earliest isolation hospitals built in this country. Now it's a field. Uh, underneath us, right there, is a tunnel that went right into the kitchen where I spent a lot of time. Founded in 1911 by the city of Winnipeg as the Winnipeg Municipal Hospital, the original facilities, the King Edward Memorial Hospital and the King George Hospital, were considered at the time to be the most modern hospitals in the world for the care of people with communicable diseases. And they're really built to contain outbreaks of influenza, even dealing with cholera, other infectious diseases at the time. It's become a part of the neighborhood, but we've kind of forgot that, that we've been through these before and that our cities have responded. And whether it was building a facility like this back in the very early 1900s to some of our very high-tech isolation units and ventilators and isolators, well, here, in the 1950s, for example, the polio outbreak was significant, and this place here became home for polio patients recovering. The Riverview Hospitals gained international distinction for the services it provided the victims of polio during the epidemic of 1953. Doctors and nurses worked tirelessly to care for patients, many of whom were confined to iron lungs two years before the discovery of the Salk vaccine would be made. And in fact, there had been people living here on these grounds from the 1950s all the way up into the 2000s. And for myself, I spent almost uh, 15 years working here and my father spent uh, well over 30. And so I actually got to know a lot of the polio patients that uh, spent the vast majority of their life here. And think back to the 50s when polio was equally devastating and even before then, from the Spanish flu, this place was here. Even in the 1950 flood, you can see around us here, a dike was built. We fought off a flood, we, we fought off infections, we fought off major catastrophes. So here we find ourselves again in the 2020s with a, a new global pandemic. And while for some it's new and we've never seen this, and it's, but it's not. And we've, we've certainly responded before and I think we'll come through this one. It will be hard. There have been casualties, catastrophic death, and restructuring. I guess for, for the perspective that I'm trying to think about, it really is how this eventually hits home at the neighborhood level of the individual who's struggling, whose neighborhood is changing, jobs have been lost, people's mental health has been challenged, well-being has been eroded, that we need to get back into our communities. And this again has been this long-standing trend in Canada where this polarizing impact has changed the way our cities are forming. And not to use the pandemic to recast how we structure our cities, but I do think it's an opportunity for us to think about planning in a different way. The last stop on our walk is to the Riverview Community Gardens. Nestled on the banks of the Red River, these are some of the oldest community gardens in the city. 
founded following the Winnipeg flood of 1950. The garden area is set on a combination of public and private land leased to the Riverview Garden Society by the City of Winnipeg. It's also a working example of the importance of having social infrastructure during a crisis. This community garden offers the residents of Riverview opportunities to socialize at a distance with neighbors, access to walkable, accessible recreation activity, and the opportunity to grow healthy food and participate in neighborhood cleanups and food share programs. Gardening also provides an overall sense of well-being, which is important in times of great anxiety. There is great potential when you start talking about using public spaces more efficiently towards growing food. This is especially important in Winnipeg's core area neighborhoods, which have experienced a shortage of food options, leaving people with limited access to affordable and nutritious food. However, creating and maintaining a community garden requires a significant amount of time, energy, and resources. Additional challenges include the quality of the soil, the cost of obtaining necessary equipment, tools, and seeds, not to mention the physical labor needed to tend a garden throughout a growing season. On top of that, securing public space, especially in the inner city where vacant lots can become contested spaces of development, can be difficult. In that regard, Riverview is fortunate to have community garden plots that were founded early and have continued to grow allowing for better organization and ingenuity while keeping plots affordable for first-time gardeners. I love this place because it really, for a long time, brought people together in this community. And, and for me, growing up as a young immigrant kid, there were a ton of Italian gardeners down here when I grew up, including my father and lots of different friends and families and, and a tremendous number of different people. But from my experience as a young immigrant kid, just laughing, kind of watching my dad grow peppers and tomatoes and turning that into tomato sauce and seeing other family members here. This place has really come along now with a bit more technology than it was back in the day. But I think the same principle remains. Come down here, grow your vegetables, be a part of a community, and I think it's really great. These are the kinds of amenities that become so important, but as well, they're not necessarily available across the board. And this goes back to the point where if we're creating unequal spaces and unequal neighborhoods and we're polarizing our, our communities based on wealth, these amenities are shut out for a lot of people. But it doesn't always have to be that way. So in our work in West Broadway, they've got an amazing food share program where for a while people were, were growing, they had community gardens and they were sharing the benefits of, of, of each harvest and each collection of, uh, of uh, produce. So there's ways around it. And I know that uh, some students that I worked with years ago created uh, uh, some community-based gardens out at the University of Manitoba, trying to grow crops that were uh, applicable to folks from African communities, experimenting with different vegetables and, and root crops, right? To really get into the cultural nuances that are reshaping Winnipeg. The cultural landscape really gets influenced by ethnicity and communities. And I love that vibrancy in cities. And a place like Winnipeg now that has seen 150,000 newcomers over the last uh, 15 years has greatly changed our, our cultural dynamic, our cultural landscape. My whole growing up was being distinct in the, in the food that I ate. 
it was, it was, it was when, when I look back, I always thought we were kind of crazy, the crazy family. But then when I see newcomers now doing the same kinds of things with different sort of foods and approaches, I love the fact that my mom's, uh, who's 85, and our neighbor, who's probably close, Filipino, Italian, uh, they trade panzit for bread. And I, I love it. It brings me back to part of my childhood growing up in this neighborhood where, again, you know, that, that is the beauty of it, right? The diversity that we want to see in our communities. It's these kinds of early experiences in Riverview that has led Stasio towards a career in academic research, focusing on cities and how neighborhoods and communities interact with each other. I always knew I was interested in cities from a very early age. Worked with my parents who had some cleaning contracts. I spent a lot of time in the inner city and old buildings, cleaning offices. And there was something about it. I, I never really wanted to be an architect, but I knew that there was something about cities that intrigued me. And it wasn't about how they were built, but it's about how people use cities and spaces. So for the last 20-something years, as a student of urban geography and urban thinking, I spent a lot of time uh, thinking about housing and neighborhoods and worked actually for a number of years with Canada Mortgage and Housing and market analysis before I decided to actually be an academic. And when I went down that path, I knew that there was again something about communities that stuck with me. And I do think it's about growing up in a neighborhood that at the time was very, very diverse socially, economically, culturally. So even working on both a master's and a PhD, it was all about how neighborhoods and cities connect and how people use or get shut out from them. And that's what I teach too. And, and in the work that I've been doing on income inequality and neighborhood change, we've moved across the country and realizing that patterns exist where our cities are being redefined along economic lines, along social or cultural lines, and where those divisions are growing between the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. Because I also spent a lot of time at the Institute of Urban Studies trying to influence policy and programs to undo some of those. Working with uh, rooming house owners, single room occupancy hotels, uh, difficult housing situations, to try to find a way in which we can make meaningful change through the influencing of federal and provincial and municipal policies. And I do think there's lots that we can do to make our cities better. I think it starts with good policies, but ultimately it's about good people in good places that have the supports of community members, that social capacity, that social capital. And I think that that's always influenced me that we need to try to figure out how to level the playing field for as many people as we can because we know that on any given day, whether individuals experience homelessness, housing insecurity, food insecurity, there's a heck of a lot more for us to do to improve our communities. So we're just trying to bring light to the inequality that exists and the fact that we need to have more tools to try to find ways out of some of this. For close to a decade, Distasio has been part of a group of academics from across Canada examining economic and social trends for the past 40 years and how they have affected neighborhoods. So the Neighborhood Change Project is really about shining a light on how neighborhoods have changed and trying to amplify the tools and resources to undo some of the, the, the bad 
but to also put a, a light and to shine a light on the good. As part of the project, the University of Winnipeg Institute of Urban Studies released the 2015 publication, Divided Prairie City, Neighborhood Inequality, Winnipeg 1970 to 2010. This work brought together 12 different experts, including DeStasio, to explore how people, places, and spaces were impacted by the growing gap between rich and poor neighborhoods in Winnipeg. Unlike some Canadian cities, Winnipeg is unique in that its slow growth and municipal amalgamation have shaped the makeup of neighborhoods. From the 1950s to the 1970s, Winnipeg's inner city fell into decline, while the suburbs grew exponentially. This rapid expansion of suburbanization was followed by slower rates of growth, separating the affluent suburban areas of the city from the inner city neighborhoods. This trend has worsened over time, as middle-income households have gotten progressively smaller in older suburban neighborhoods, while wealth moved to the edges of the city. This has visibly altered the social-spatial structure of the city, with rich and poor areas becoming more physically distinct. It's the disappearing middle-income household that has Distasio particularly worried. Between 1980 and now, for every neighborhood in Winnipeg whose income went up, two neighborhoods went down in their income. And in those neighborhoods that went down, it was both the collapse of the middle class and the entrenchment of poverty. And the neighborhoods where incomes went up were tended to be on suburban areas where wealth is migrating out of this city. And again, that's a pattern that we're seeing. And that's the piece that we need to address and change. And I'm afraid that this pandemic is going to amplify those divisions and entrench the, the, the impoverished neighborhoods that are going to have less resources to respond to some of these uh, emerging crises. As we depart from the garden, heading down Oakwood Avenue, the research question remains. How do we build more resilient cities post-coronavirus? As we already heard, part of that answer lies with rethinking ways in which a city uses urban space. For instance, during the pandemic, countries in Europe converted shipping containers into care units and repurposed old buildings into more functional spaces for the public. These examples provide a glimpse into how we may prioritize the urban landscape for our collective benefit. We heard about the conversion of Churchill Drive into a pedestrian-friendly street. This is something that's happening all over the world to facilitate more active living while engaging in social distancing. The reduction of traffic and extension of foot and bike paths within urban areas promotes opportunities in thinking about sustainable mobility. The coronavirus pandemic has also highlighted the importance of having public spaces like community gardens. However, as we also heard, many neighborhoods are having trouble finding the space and support needed to develop a community gardening program. And while cities can gift vacant lots to neighborhoods and private owners of buildings can grant space to tenant rooftop gardens, it's community organizations that ultimately make long-term projects like community gardens succeed. When it comes to solutions regarding how we may foster neighborhood resiliency in Winnipeg, Gestasio says we need to look to established community organizations, many of which already provide community-based solutions to address things like housing and poverty, while providing social and economic opportunities. For decades, these organizations have utilized the principles of community economic development and have been vital when it comes to neighborhood resilience. Inner-city organizations like West Broadway Community Organization have spent over 25 years working on social and community initiatives that bring residents together to work on mutual projects like gardening and food share programs while offering small grants for local beautification projects. West Broadway is this tremendously resilient neighborhood that for 50 years has been home to a significant number 
of community-minded individuals and organizations that have really been geared towards supporting positive change over time and addressing very complicated social and economic issues in that neighborhood, whether it's high crime, high poverty, gang activity, drug use. Nonprofit community groups are often tasked with tackling complex societal challenges such as poverty and social exclusion that are sometimes inadequately addressed by governments and market forces. Despite this, many organizations that rely on government support are often struggling to figure out how to generate the budget needed in order to keep providing their essential services and achieving their social missions. Nastasio maintains that the social and economic recovery of neighborhoods will require strong communities empowered by local community-based organizations. This will require more government investment in these groups. Governments also need to invest in a range of other post-pandemic supports, including research. Well, I think it's going to be important that we engage on the social side of research to really, again, understand the impacts to mental health and well-being, the economic impacts, the potential loss of housing. There's going to be a lot of work to be understood in the coming years. People are ill, systems are overwhelmed, and communities are struggling. So as much as there's been some really cool community-mindedness, I think that we're going to have to work to better understand the short and the long-term impacts. And I think that that's where research can really play an important role in contributing to policy development as we try to rebuild post-COVID. While much of our attention must remain on continuing to support measures aimed at slowing the spread of COVID-19, treating those hardest hit, and developing a vaccine, addressing widening income inequality social and structural barriers in neighborhoods is key not only to the post-pandemic recovery process, but our ability to mitigate future crises. Great neighborhoods are really about diversity, about walkability, about quality of life, and about making sure that as many Canadians have access to quality of life, not interrupted by poverty, not interrupted by exclusion or racism. And that's where we need to draw the line for changing the inequality that we see right now in our cities. So we're taking a pretty holistic approach to understanding where we are now and where we need to go to sort of focus in on recovery. But I do again bring it back to the, the level of the community. And I think as communities rebuild, we can rebuild cities. And as cities rebuild, we can rebuild countries and the economies. For Distasio, what remains paramount is to find ways on how to support each other, globally and locally, while leveraging community resiliency in order to build cities and neighborhoods in a more fair and equitable way. You've been listening to Research Question. Research Question is recorded at the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center. The University of Winnipeg is located on Treaty 1 territory, the heartland of the Métis people. Written and produced by Kent Davies. Interview with Dr. Gino D'Astasio. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. For more information on the Neighborhood Change Research Partnership, go to neighborhoodchange.ca. For more research by the Institute of Urban Studies, go to uwinnipeg.ca IUS. For more University of Winnipeg research, go to uwinnipeg.ca research. For more info on the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center and the work that we do, go to oralhistorycenter.ca. Thanks for listening.